What a great night. This is just, what a great day this has been. The Lord's table and fellowshipping together and seeing all of you. Our, our Sunday evening service is kind of the closest thing to normal we have right now. I think that's been said already. Hebrews 11 verse 1, very familiar to us, says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Assurance of things hoped for. Other translations you may be more familiar with say the substance of things hoped for. It's a Greek word which means the essential or basic structure or nature of an entity, a substantial nature, its essence, and it's often in contrast to what merely seems to be. And assurance is something that you can't see, and yet you have. And that is what our faith is. And in fact, the idea of faith is so much a part of Christianity that in the New Testament, the body of truth we believe is often simply called the faith and is related strongly to the idea of believing something. But the faith is not a blind faith at all. It's substantial. It's rooted in the revelation of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and the revelation of the Word of God. But beyond that, beyond the faith being the body of truth that we believe, obviously being in the faith, being one who has trusted Christ as Savior for the forgiveness of sins, which is by faith. For those in the faith, beyond being in the faith, we are to live by faith. We live in the faith. We live by faith. We live by an abiding trust and abiding confidence and reliance on the Lord. You didn't come to faith in Christ And then God spoke to you in the night and said, well, I hope you make it okay. We'll see you when you die. No, he didn't say that. We're to live by faith. We're to walk with him. And the true believer in Christ yearns and abides for and and abides in this reliant faith. This is the kind of faith we want. We want faith which says I can wait as long as is necessary, even beyond my own lifetime. We want faith that says, I can entrust God to the very depths of every pain that I must endure. We want faith that says, I can endure anything with grace and patience. We want faith which says, I can truly believe that every single detail of my life is being orchestrated by the wisdom and the sovereignty of God. We want faith which says, I can humbly receive correction and even criticism as a means of growing in the Lord. We want faith that says, I'm not above the discipline and correction of God. We want faith which says, I can believe God to do more than I possibly thought conceivable. We want faith which says, I can ignore my circumstances completely and focus instead on the goodness and the character of God despite whatever is happening. I want that. You want that. And I would say that's very much the definition of a mature Christian is one who is walking in that sort of faith. And that sort of faith is exactly the major lesson we can take from our text tonight. Numbers chapters 13 and 14. Chapters 14, yes, 13 and 14. Now this is a a portion of our Bible that's well known to you. If you grew up in the church, you probably did coloring pages in Sunday school from these chapters. And it has the added bonus of exciting things like spies and giants and battles. All kinds of great things that make for good crayons. But this section primarily is a lesson in what not to do. It really is a lesson in failure of faith. And so to stay true to the spirit of the text here, I want to just very simply give you three problems to avoid when God asks you to have faith in him. Three problems to avoid when God asks you to have faith in him. And then, like uh, some of our Puritan forefathers, I want to give you some bonus applications at the end from this famous story. Problems to avoid when God asks you to have faith in Him. The first problem to avoid, a missed opportunity. Avoid a missed opportunity. And we begin in chapter 13, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan. We get to the spies already. Very exciting story. Which I am giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, everyone a chief among them. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran, according to the command of the Lord, all of the men who were heads of the people of Israel. So as the Israelites have traveled from Sinai 
to the wilderness of Kadesh Barnea. They're now kind of at the border of Canaan, the, the southern border. And they've come to the moment of truth when God will begin the process of having them take the land which is rightfully theirs, the promised land of Canaan, deeded to Abraham, their ancestor, by God himself. From verses 4 through 16, we get a detailed list of the 12 men, one chosen from each tribe, not including the tribe of Levi. We talked about that last week. Notable among these 12 men are Caleb from the tribe of Judah and Joshua, Moses' personal assistant and someday successor. He comes from the tribe of Ephraim. Now, these 12 men wouldn't travel probably as a band. They would either split up as individuals or into pairs and and perhaps even stay a few days apart from one another as they traveled through the land, all of them spying out the whole land, just looking like travelers, just sojourners walking through. And Moses gives them specific instructions. Verse 17, Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, go up into the Negev and go up into the hill country. And see what the land is, and whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many, and whether the land that they dwell in is good or bad, and whether the cities that they dwell in are camps or strongholds, and whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are trees in it or not. Be of good courage, and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. Now, What is he asking them to do? Well, first of all, he says, go up into the Negev and go into the hill country. If you looked at a map map of this part of the country back then, this is very simply saying, start in the south and work your way north. That's what he's telling them. The Negev, the Negev was the dry region in the south, the hill country farther north. So what are they checking on? According to these four verses, five verses or so, they're checking on military strength, populations, fortifications, and agriculture. So Moses says, bring back a report of all of these things. Everything's going pretty well. They went out for 40 days. Verses 21 and 22 list the various places they went. And then they came to Hebron, 19 miles southeast of what would be Jerusalem someday. It's a very lush area. It's close to the valley of Eskal, which just means cluster. It's named that afterwards because this is where they got the giant cluster of grapes, picked pomegranates, figs. But in Hebron, they ran into a problem. Verse 22 says, Ahaman, Shishai, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, were there. Why is this a problem? Well, it's a problem because the descendants of Anak tended to be very tall. Now, I want you to keep something in mind. In Moses' day, the average man was about 5'2 or 5'3. That was the average height. So, even in the early 1800s in North America, the Cheyenne Indian tribe was considered among the tallest people in the world at an average height of 5'10. So, heights have gotten different. The Anakim, the descendants of Anak, are mentioned numerous times in Scripture as being extremely tall, And scholars have guessed that at the low range, it would be about six foot six inches, somewhere in there. So what is that going to be like? That's a battle with them is going to be like the Los Angeles Lakers playing the junior high basketball team. It's going to be a blowout. And so if you're 5'2", and you're having to fight one-on-one with a guy who's 6'8", that's not going to go well. And so the spies came back after 40 days carrying samples of the glorious bounty of the land. Verse 27 And they told him, we came to the land to which you sent us. Now, I want you to remember that phrase. We came to the land to which you sent us. Just stick that in your brain. We'll come back to it. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Here we get our famous phrase, the land flowing with milk and honey. This is just a metaphor to say that everything grows beautifully. It's abundant. It's generous. It's agriculturally rich. Very, very fertile. But Caleb, he wouldn't have it. Chapter 13, verse 30. Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Joshua also believed, and he had faith in the Lord's promises. But he was already Moses' closest assistant, and so Caleb 
really more of an outside voice. He would probably carry a little bit more weight to the citizenry of Israel. These are chieftains who went as spies. And they're chosen because they had credibility with their tribes. What was supposed to happen? What was supposed to happen is that they come back and say, we can do this. And they rally all of their people. So this is a key moment. But ten of them fail. Well, Caleb and Joshua weren't influenced by appearances. They weren't ruled by what one scholar called the oral majority. The ten chieftains who were afraid. Caleb said, we are well able to overcome the land. Now, I want to give you an interesting little fact here. We've already seen this. Israel left Egypt with just over 600,000 fighting men. This is listed in at least two different places. 600,000 fighting men. The best archaeology that we have says that at the highest, at the, the largest estimate during this time in Canaan, these various little nations, the Jebusites, the, the, the uh, other nations there, put them all together, put them all together, and they had 100,000 fighting men. So, yes, you might be 5'2", fighting a guy who's 6'8", but you've got five other guys who are 5'2", fighting the guy who's 6'8". Numerically, from a human standpoint, Israel had a six-to-one advantage. And yet they were afraid. Well, now the ten faithless spies turn up the heat, and now they start exaggerating. Chapter 13, verse 31. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out, is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers. And so we seemed to them. All kinds of exaggerations. First, they exaggerated the military strength of Canaan. They said, we can't possibly beat them. But they actually had a six to one advantage. Second, they exaggerated the danger Verse 32, it says, this is a land that devours its inhabitants. Now, what does this mean? There's a few possibilities here. Obviously, you could have fighting between the city-states in Canaan. But Canaan was also a bridge between Mesopotamia to the north and Africa to the south. And so various large empires and armies always had to march through Canaan to go conquer one another. There were regular invasions from neighboring nations But any of those cases, though, still don't explain the fact that there's a huge contradiction here, a huge exaggeration. The land devours its inhabitants, meaning it's weak. And yet it says, they say, all the people we saw are of great height, meaning they're strong. Well, which one is it? Which one is it? There's a third exaggeration. In fact, this is just a flat out lie. Verse 33 And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. The Nephilim were the giant men of the earth, the products of demons, called in Genesis 6, verse 4, the sons of God, fallen angels, having used human men to have children with women of the world, creating this huge group of warrior men called in Genesis 6, 4, the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. And so the ten are saying, the descendants of the Nephilim are in the land. And so they're, they're panicked. These are the demon men. As one scholar wrote, the ten spies presented Canaan as some sort of Jurassic Park inhabited by humanosauruses. But here's the exaggeration. Did you notice their lack of logic? Not thinking this through, the Nephilim lived before what? The flood. There were no more Nephilim. Yes, there were some really tall guys, but there was no one conceived by demonic power at all. By the way, these 10 men were forgetting something that just months earlier, God had defeated the most powerful army on earth without Israel so much as raising a sword or a spear, Egypt in the Red Sea. And so these men are missing an opportunity placed before them to have faith in the Lord. Uh, I wondered this, and I wonder if you're thinking this too. Do you ever wonder why God didn't just tell them what to expect and tell them what was going to happen? Why did he send them out into the land? Could have saved a whole lot of trouble. 
The point here was not for them to go and find out information to see the great fertility and the richness of the land. God could have just told them that. The point for them was to go and confront their fears, to see precisely what they must confront by faith in God so that they wouldn't be surprised. And actually, this is a, this is a tremendous blessing. Wouldn't you like it if being, before being surprised by a great and tremendous trial that the Lord said, I'm going to give you a little preview. Here's what you need to be praying about. This is going to happen next week, so start praying now. Wouldn't that be a gift? But we don't get that gift. We just get surprised. We just get the email that says, oh, I lost my job. We, we don't get to prepare. Now, remember I said that they told Moses, we came to the land to which you sent us. From a human standpoint, whose idea was this whole spying thing anyway? The spies were sent out in the fourth month of the second year after escaping Egypt. 38 years later, Moses would be giving an historical speech to the second generation of Israelites as once again they're on the border of Canaan, ready to invade at God's order. In Deuteronomy 1, 22 and 23, Moses recounts 38 years earlier, then all of you came to me and said, let us send men before us that they may explore the land for us and bring us word again of the way by which we must go up and the cities into which we shall come. The things seemed good to me. And I took 12 men from you, one man from each tribe. But they said, we went to the land that you sent us. Uh Uh-uh, it was their idea. It was their idea. It was the people's idea to send spies. Now, the two accounts from Deuteronomy and Numbers are very easily harmonized. Numbers singles out the divine initiative. This was God's will for them to go, but he used their human will. Deuteronomy singles out the human initiative. You notice when they said, and the verses I just read to you, let's send some guys out to go see which way we're going to go. It was nothing more than just plotting a course. That's all it was. They were strong in their faith. They were optimistic. And by sending spies out into the land, they were meant to see the richness and the goodness of the land. And in God's sovereign will, they were meant to see their great need for faith. They were meant to come back to the camp of Israel and to say, we need to pray. We need to have faith. And they missed the whole point. They missed it. Remember the total plan of God going all the way back to Genesis 1, 26 through 28, that mankind is to rule and subdue the earth, being fruitful and multiplying, but because of sin, God instituted a means of redeeming a portion of humanity to fulfill that plan. And God would raise up Abraham through whom would come a people, who would become a nation, Israel, and this nation was to produce Messiah through whom all peoples of the world could be blessed in salvation from sin to someday fulfill God's plan to populate the world with redeemed nations. And so in the scope of that plan, as part of that plan, Israel is about to receive their land and they said, no thank you, no thanks. This generation missed the mark, they missed the opportunity to be part of God's redemptive plan. God is going to, in your life, continually place before you faith opportunities. They'll be there pretty much every day. Circumstances which present a fork in the road. And I'm going to tell you right now, just having that perspective alone is very helpful. Just knowing and understanding that that every time a circumstance comes up where you have a chance to trust the Lord or trust yourself, it is a decision. There's a decision to be made. Which way am I going to go? And when you see circumstances as a faith opportunity, what does it do? It, it drives you to prayer. It drives you to belief. It drives you to elevate God and denigrate yourself. It drives you to act upon your belief in the sovereignty of God. I've heard plenty of Christians say, oh, I believe that God is sovereign. I've seen fewer Christians actually live that God is sovereign. Seeing circumstances as a faith opportunity, it humbles you. It takes away what Israel was struggling with here, and that is a sense of entitlement. So when God asks you to have faith in Him, avoid a missed opportunity. Avoid the missed opportunity. Our text gives us a second problem to avoid. Avoid a pathetic response. Avoid a pathetic response. Chapter 14, 
Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, The land which we passed through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. What does that mean? We're going to gobble them up. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. What a pathetic response. In fact, I want to give you a list of the pathetic sins that this nation commits in a very short section. There's probably more than this, but I'm going to identify seven sins that they commit. Verse 1, attempted mob rule. Attempted mob rule. They raised a loud cry instead of listening and trusting the Lord. They attempted to to simply intimidate by sheer numbers. Does that sound familiar? Attempted mob rule. Second sin they committed, self-pity. The people wept that night. Verse 2, self-pity continued. We wish we had died in Egypt or in the wilderness. When somebody says to you, I wish I was dead, I mean, what do you say to that? You know, I mean, I'll pray for you. You know, what what do you want me to say? It's self-pity. It's not helpful. The third sin, they're grumbling. And it's not just grumbling. Verse 2 says they grumbled. It means murmured against Aaron and Moses. But they grumbled against God. When God's people grumble against his chosen leaders, he takes it very personally. Look all the way near the end of the chapter. Verse 27 of chapter 14. And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? They grumbled against Moses and Aaron, but it was really against God. They grumbled. There's a fourth pathetic sin. Verse 3 of chapter 14. They assume that God will fail them. They assume that God will fail. We're, We're going to fall by the sword. Our children and our wives are going to be slaughtered. They assume that God would fail. There's a fifth pathetic sin. They desire to break covenant with God. They desire to break covenant with God. Let's go back to Egypt. Let's just go back to the way it was. Where did they just come from? They came from Mount Sinai. They saw the glory of God. They received the law of God. They received God's promises to them. And already, before it even gets very hard, let's break covenant. It's the sixth pathetic sin. The rejection of God's chosen leadership. The rejection of God's chosen leadership. Let's choose a new leader and go back. I don't like what these leaders are doing, so we're going to choose new ones. They rejected Moses, rejected Aaron, rejected Joshua, rejected Caleb. And the seventh pathetic sin, the rejection of sound preaching. They had preachers before them. The rejection of sound preaching. Joshua and Caleb preached, do not rebel against the Lord. Do not fear. And what was their response to sound preaching? The people set out to kill them, to stone them to death. Listen, the wheels came off of their faith. This was disaster. They're treating God as if he's the enemy for leading them into this seemingly impossible situation. And so they mutiny. Have you ever had a pathetic response when faced with a situation that you know you must trust the Lord? I know you have. Because I hear about them enough to know I believe 100% of us have had a pathetic response. The kind that you look back and say, wow, I can't believe I actually said that. It's common to our experience. Maybe a response of despair. Maybe a response of a purely human solution. Maybe a response of prayerlessness or worse, your prayers being solely prayers of complaint and grumbling and griping and moaning to the Lord. A response of anger, a response of blaming others, or a response of refusing to examine yourself. 
all kinds of pathetic responses. Did you know something, though? Did you know that in this humanity, Jesus Christ went through the exercise of learning to respond right? Do you know that? What does it mean by learning? I mean to experience and successfully navigate an opportunity to trust his Father in heaven. And I'd like to show you this. I think this is really key for us. Turn with me over to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews 5 is, is very unique because it's a rare glimpse into the heart of Christ himself, into his relationship with his heavenly Father. And we really see a, a transparent view of Christ. Hebrews chapter 5 speaking of the high priesthood of Jesus Christ. And we get this glimpse of his relationship with his father. It's very real. It's very raw. Hebrews 5, verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. This is a specific reference to Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane before his arrest, he's praying with such intensity that he sweat great drops of blood. And he prayed, it says, with loud cries and tears. Does that sound familiar? Numbers 14, 1, then all the congregation raised a loud cry and the people wept into the night. Or wept that night, rather. But what's different about the cries and tears of Israel and the cries and tears of Christ? The cries and tears of Israel were an attempt to run from God in weakness. And the cries and tears of Christ were him running into the arms of his father to receive strength. And that's where the similarity ends. Verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. This isn't learning in the sense of omniscient God gaining new knowledge that's not possible it's the sense of Jesus being hands-on that he's personally experienced trusting his father as a human being for an impossible situation for which he must have faith and what happens well he came through it of course with flying colors doesn't it comfort you to know that God doesn't ask you to have faith in him as a theoretical exercise that he has never personally done himself Christ has had to have faith just like we do in verse 9 and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. This isn't speaking of the sinless perfection which Christ has always had, always possessed. It means that through this trial, he came through it with perfect faith in his father, trusting his father even unto death. By the way, Israel responded to God's will with loud cries and tears and rebellion when God's will was to preserve them. And Jesus responded to God's will with loud cries and tears and full obedience when God's will was to put him to death for the sins of humanity. Israel pathetically rebelled against God when God was going to save them. And Jesus obeyed God when God was going to pour his wrath on him. Jesus said to his father, not my will, but yours be done. And he was strengthened for the task of being humiliated and tortured and killed, even as God poured his wrath on his own son. Now, turn back to Numbers 13 and 14. And I want to freeze frame for a moment. Let's just kind of just stop everything. Right to the point where the people are picking up stones to murder Caleb and Joshua, and most likely Moses and Aaron as well. And let's rewind, picture everybody going backwards and unsaying all of the things that they said, to chapter 13, verse 30. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. What should have the people done? Instead of attempted mob rule, they could have followed the example of their leaders who were trusting the Lord. Instead of self-pity, they could bolster their courage by remembering the past deeds of God. Listen, the Red Sea was just 16 months earlier. Instead of grumbling against God, they could have praised God in advance for his goodness and his protection. They could have prayed, thank you, God, for what you're about to do. Instead of assuming that God will fail them, they could have verbalized and, and sang of their trust in God. 
Exodus 15, after the Red Sea, the people sang to God, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. Instead of a desire to break covenant with God, they could have reaffirmed their covenant loyalty. They could have said, God, if this is what you ask for us, even if you slay us, we will follow you. We will obey you at any and all costs. They could have remembered God's covenant with Abraham, that God promised Abraham to give them this land hundreds of years earlier. Instead of rejection of God's chosen leadership, they could have trusted that God has placed men over them for a purpose. Not perfect men, but chosen men, ordained men, set apart men. And instead of rejecting sound preaching, they could have let the preaching of God's men penetrate their hearts, penetrate their minds, and encourage them to valor and resolution. Listen, once you shut out the preacher, the one who has been called to proclaim God's word to you, God says, preacher, you're done. I'm going to take care of this myself. And that's precisely what happened. When God asks you to have faith in him, avoid a missed opportunity, avoid a pathetic response. God steps in. The third problem to avoid, avoid a severe consequence. Avoid a severe consequence. The people have picked up stones to murder Caleb, Joshua, Moses, and Aaron. Chapter 14, verse 10, Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. The glory of God blindingly stops this whole pathetic scene. And God addresses Moses, by the way, where everybody could hear. They're all hearing this. Verse 11, And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? Remember, A bunch of them are there with rocks. They're like this, listening to God. How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them. And I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. God could still keep his covenant promises to Abraham, even if he wiped out everyone except Moses. He could still do it. And wow, what a moment. Can you imagine how different history would be, how different our Bible would be if Moses had said, sounds good, let's do that. But of course, God has placed Moses to be the mediator between sinful Israel and holy God. And Moses does just that. He intercedes, he pleads. Listen to this tremendous prayer of intercession. Verse 13, but Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear of it. For you brought up this people in your might from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night. Now if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard your fame will say, It is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give them that he has killed them in the wilderness. And now, please, let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying, The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation, Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. What is Moses doing? He's appealing to the glory of God. And he's saying, your glory will be diminished if you decimate this people. And what a beautiful model of God preserving our salvation through the intercession of Christ, isn't it? We completely deserve to be struck by God for our daily sin, our continued rebellion, even after salvation. We deserve to lose our salvation. We deserve for God to disinherit us. But Hebrews 7.25 says that Christ always lives to make intercession for you. Romans 8.34 says that Jesus is at the right hand of God interceding for us. And it's because of this intercession, because of the mediation of Christ, Paul goes on to say in Romans 8.35, who shall separate us From the love of Christ. Short answer given in many words later in the chapter is nothing and no one. Nothing will separate us. And so what a happy ending 
chapter 14, verse 20. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. I have pardoned according to your word. Happy ending. But just because God always keeps his covenant does not mean he lets us off the hook when we fail to trust him and when we rebel against him. Verse 21. But truly, in Hebrew, but means uh uh-oh. But truly, as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to their fathers, swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despise me shall see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land into which he went, and his descendants shall possess it. Now, since the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valleys, turn tomorrow and set out for the wilderness by the way to the Red Sea. Verse 21, God says, as I live, God is swearing by his own life that he will discipline Israel for this breach of faith. In other words, the only way discipline won't happen is if God dies. Therefore, discipline is going to happen. Verse 22, he says, They have put me to the test these ten times. This is just an idiom. This is an expression that means one too many times. They've crossed the line. They've gone too far. And in verse 25, God revokes his offer of military victory. He says, run the other way from the Amalekites and the Canaanites because you're not going to win. And now God passes sentence, a severe discipline, a severe consequence on the nation. The nation will be preserved, but not all of them. And now we have a private conversation with Moses and Aaron. Verse 26. And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and all of your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. But your little ones, who you said would become a prey, I will bring in, and they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years, and shall suffer for your faithlessness until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. According to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, forty days, A year for each day, you shall bear your iniquity 40 years, and you shall know my displeasure. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this will I do to all this wicked congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness, they shall come to a full end, and there they shall die. In Hebrew, that is presented as a poem. It is a rhyming, as it were, if we were going to do an English poem, it is a rhyming condemnation. God passes sentence, and what is his sentence? His discipline consists of giving them exactly what they wanted. Chapter 14, verse 2, they wish they had all died in the wilderness, now they will. They didn't want to enter the land of Canaan, now they won't. And the children that they feared would suffer at the hands of the Canaanites will now suffer because of their parents' sin. The children will have to wait 38 more years. Put it this way, if you're 10 years old, you think you're about to get a new home, you'll wait till you're 48 years old or so. This is severe discipline. But God isn't finished yet. God has a very serious disdain for leaders who lead people into lack of faith. Leaders are supposed to inspire you to faith, not lead you to lack of faith. Remember the ten spies? Verse 37, The men who brought up a bad report of the land died by plague before the Lord. God kills them. Not instantly with the sword, but by some terrible plague which killed them in agony as their bodies are essentially consumed by disease so fast that they die in misery before all the people and before God. 
And now God has their attention. But the people wrongly assumed that they could simply say, oh, sorry about that, and resume God's plan to conquer Canaan. Verse 39, when Moses told these words to all the people of Israel, the people mourned greatly. Great, they're seemingly repentant, and that's very good. But sometimes the discipline must continue, and the consequences for high-level lack of trust in God will be carried out, or the lesson won't be learned. Verse 40, and they rose early in the morning, And went up to the heights of the hill country saying, here we are. We will go up to the place that the Lord has promised for we have sinned. And they're thinking, well, this should be all over now. But it's not. Moses warned them, don't do it. God will not be with you. In fact, you're only sinning all the more. Verse 44, but they presumed to go up to the heights of the hill country, although neither the ark of the covenant of the Lord nor Moses departed out of the camp. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and defeated them and pursued them even to Hormah. Israel will not humble herself under the discipline of the Lord and tries to take back the opportunity when it was too late. They think they've turned around, but instead they're only rebelling all the more. They're sort of like a couple of decades ago, the fabulous basketball player Jason Kidd, when he was drafted by the Dallas Mavericks, he said, we're going to turn this team around 360 degrees. Do the math, it's no change. Here's the irony. Israel was afraid to go into Canaan when God was with them, and they were not afraid to go into Canaan when God was not with them. They've got it turned around. Now they have a self-styled gung-ho attitude, a a common spirit often called esprit de corps. But they would go from esprit de corps to esprit de corpse because they're going to die. And many of them die running for their lives. Why? Because they would not listen. And so that generation will wander in the wilderness of Kadesh Barnea for 38 more years, rounded up often to just simply say for 40 years. Even if you believe in and you accept the discipline of the Lord, we talked about this last week in Numbers 10 through 12, I think sometimes it doesn't sink in just how severe God's discipline can be. I I think sometimes we feel like he's got to play by certain rules, especially when it's connected to flat-out rebellion, connected to things like attempted mob rule, self-pity, grumbling against God, assuming that God will fail you, desiring to break covenant with God, rejection of God's chosen leadership, rejection of sound preaching, Don't assume that somehow you're special, you're different, and that God would not impose discipline for rebellion at a mind-boggling level. As a parent of small children, a small little tap on the rear end does nothing for a child except incite him to more rebellion and frustration. The truly effective spanking is the one that takes his breath away and causes what? Loud cries and tears. That's the effective one. Discipline can be as severe as God needs it to be in order to form you into the image of Christ up to and including premature death. Because at your death, his will is accomplished. You are made Christ-like. But I'll say this. There's several examples in the New Testament. If you continually refuse the process of Christ-likeness on earth, then God may elect to instantly finish the process. Don't think God won't do something horrible, something severe, particularly with flat-out rebellion, flat-out lack of faith, just desiring not to trust Him at all. The the level of loss that God can inflict on you can be mind-blowing, almost to the point of feeling like God isn't fair. Well, let me ask you this. Let's turn it around. How fair is it that you won't trust God who saved you from your sins? How fair is it when you won't believe That the God who could part the Red Sea, the God who could make the heavens and the earth, the God who could orchestrate every detail of your life, the God who could open your heart in regeneration to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, the God who could could bring Moses and the people of Israel all the way to the promised land, the God who would come to earth as a man and die on the cross and be raised from the dead and ascend into heaven for you, how fair is it to believe that that God will fail you? That's not fair. So what do you do? When God asks you to have faith in Him, avoid a missed opportunity 
avoid a pathetic response, thereby avoiding a severe consequence. I did not set the tone of Numbers 13 and 14. This is what God would say. But I want to show you something. Even in the midst of a severe consequence, God still loves you and cares for you. When he said, I am with you even to the end of the age, he meant that. Even in the midst of a severe consequence, it wasn't God's desire that his people wander in the wilderness for four decades. But if he was going to discipline them, he would give them help and give them mercy along the way. They would wander in the wilderness of Kardesh Barnea. This is the northern Sinai wilderness, which gets about two to five inches of rain per year. Yes, the entire first generation of God's people would die, but they should have all died, humanly speaking. You can't have that many people surviving. There is no human explanation for the survival of Israel in this land. Several million people cannot survive in that wilderness without irrigation, without infrastructure, without settling in one place, and certainly not living a nomadic life. There are a few nomads there now, but even now you don't build cities there. You can't support millions of them, and yet God did. If you put together the texts of Deuteronomy 8, verse 4, and Deuteronomy 29, verses 5 and 6, there are three ways that we know that God was kind and merciful to Israel as they wandered through this desert land. From Deuteronomy 8, 4, and Deuteronomy 29, 5, 6, first of all, their clothes didn't wear out. Their clothes didn't wear out, including their sandals, by the way. Considering the fact that they were outdoors all the time and walking for miles and miles and years and years, this is nothing short of miraculous. They were in survival mode. They couldn't stop to make new sandals, and certainly they couldn't go through the long process of making new clothes, and yet their clothes never wore out. The second way God was kind and merciful, they were protected from physical harm from walking great distances. They were protected from physical harm, from walking great distances. Deuteronomy 8 verse 4 says, your foot did not swell these 40 years. What is that talking about? If you're dehydrated and you walk a great distance, your feet can swell from edema. And it's a, it's a horrible condition that begins to, be, to begin a cascade of dangerous health conditions that can actually kill you. And so considering they're walking and that they're in a desert, God preventing about three million people from physical hardship is remarkable. And the third way that God protected them, they never one time lacked for food. They always had manna. They always had plenty. And, And we know also that God also provided water for them. So their clothes never wore out. They didn't have physical problems along the way. This is the slight problem of dropping dead every once in a while. But along the way, they didn't have physical problems. And they never one time lacked for food. You put it this way, when you look at the next census, basically what we'll see is that God completely replaced all the people who died. In fact, it comes within about 1,800 people of being exactly the same number who come back to Canaan about 38 years later. That means millions of people have died. That means a funeral every day. A funeral every day, and yet God preserved them. Even in severe consequences, God was kind and merciful, and by preserving Israel... He sovereignly continues his redemptive plan such that about 1,450 years later, Jesus Christ would be born, where? In Israel, and accomplish his work of atoning for the sins not only of his people, but all who would believe on him. Now, I told you earlier that I would give you some bonus applications from this story. It's full of helpful principles. So, in the spirit of the Puritans of old, I want to give you seven applications from this text. The last one will be what I'll call surefire faith boosters. Here's the first application. God's people rise to the level of their leaders. God's people rise to the level of their leaders. Yes, Moses, Aaron, Joshua, and Caleb had faith, but they were overwhelmed by the ten who did not. And since the ten were tribal leaders whom their people trusted, the lack of faith exhibited by their leaders now bled into the lives of the people. This is true in the church. This is true in the home. That God's people rise to the level of their leaders. So if you are a leader and you are afraid and you show lack of faith, lack of trust in the Lord, that's what everyone else will do as well. 
if you show purely human solutions instead of relying on the Lord, that's what those under you will do as well. So second application, God will use the humanly helpless to accomplish his will. God will use the humanly helpless to accomplish his will. Ironically, the battle-aged men failed in faith and said, our children are going to be prey, they're going to be victims of the Canaanites. In fact, it would be the children who would come back and have victory over the Canaanites. God doesn't need superstars. He just needs people who will say, I'm helpless and therefore I must trust you. Assert your helplessness to God. That's how you trust him. There's a third application. Lack of faith has consequences for others. Your lack of faith has consequences for others. The children had to wander the wilderness for 40 years because of their parents' lack of faith. Your walk with the Lord is not independent of those around you. It's interrelated. When you refuse to forgive, others get hurt. When you refuse correction and rebuke, others get hurt. When you refuse to trust God and instead continually expect others to rescue you, others get hurt. When your lack of faith leads to unwise choices, others pay the price. Lack of faith has consequences for others. Here's a fourth application. Fear is contagious. Fear is contagious. The spies fear, and so the whole nation then feared. Can you imagine if it was the other way around? Can you imagine what a unified leadership, these 12 men plus Moses and Aaron, all proclaiming, God has given this land into our hands. Do not fear what you see. Trust in God. Now armor up. What would they have done? I think they would have followed them. When you respond to a faith opportunity in fear, it spreads. It infects those around you. Be the person who gives courage, not the person who makes everyone else's hearts melt with fear. Give courage. So fifth application, disunity in spiritual leadership is a disaster. Disunity in spiritual leadership is a disaster. The leaders were split. Those who wanted to trust the Lord and those who wanted to trust their own judgment. And who did the people follow? The ones who wanted to trust their own judgment. That's going to happen every time. This is true in the church. It's true in your family. Elders in the, in the church are to be unified under a fearless trust in the Lord. And parents are to be unified in their home. When leaders bicker in front of their followers, it's a catastrophe. Elders are to work in unity. Parents are never to be at odds in front of your children. That happens behind closed doors. You work things out and you come out presenting the united front. Here's a sixth application. There are two basic worldviews in the Bible. There are two basic worldviews in the Bible. Here's what they are. Faith in the Lord to overcome impossible odds and lack of faith in which people believe they must save themselves. Those are the only two worldviews in Scripture. Faith is a courage which conquers, and lack of faith, yes, correctly assesses the impossibility of a situation, but fails to say, oh, God is a variable here. God is a variable. Well, our last application, I told you I'd give you this, some surefire faith boosters. Surefire faith boosters. I'll give you five of them. The first one, suffering. Suffering is a faith booster. It's meant to be. We're to endure it. James 1, verses 2 and 3 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your what? Faith produces steadfastness. It is, you're to embrace your suffering. And so if you see suffering as an opportunity to build your faith, it is going to the gym, spiritually speaking. Embrace it. Suffering is a faith booster. Sovereignty is a faith booster. And I don't mean just believing it at a shallow intellectual level. I mean grasping it. I mean contemplating it. I mean thinking about it. Thinking about and grasping the sovereignty of God is essential because what that means is no matter the outcome, you're safe in his plan. I've seen this in my counseling office. I've seen this enough times that I believe it with all of my heart that it is possible for somebody to come to such a full knowledge and such a trust in the sovereignty of God that they literally can sit back and say, whatever happens, happens. I can get run over or I can have a successful outcome and it really doesn't matter. 
and there's joy and there's peace because now you're not focused on solving the problem. Now you're focused on believing that God is sovereign and you can do that. After being humbled, God told Job in Job 42 verse 2, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. God is sovereign. When you're going through a trial, don't picture God going, boy, I don't know what we're going to do about this one. Gabriel, Michael, what do you guys think? No, he's sovereign. He's got this. Suffering, sovereignty. There's a third surefire faith booster, supplication. Supplication. What a glorious place to be that you're in such a place of dependence that prayer is now not a problem. And so what do you do? Supplication basically means praying until you're prayed out. Until you're finished. Have you ever prayed until you're, you just sense that your soul has been fully emptied of all that needs to be said to the Lord? That's what supplication is. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. This is like the teddy bear of our Bible that comforts us. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything by prayer and what? Supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. In other words, dump out all your requests to Him. Everything. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let me give you a fourth surefire faith booster. We'll call this one story. Story. Your own story. How God has worked and moved in your lifetime. I'm amazed how we completely forget God's history with us. Psalm 77, beginning in verse 11, the psalmist says, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. In fact, let me back up. Verses 1 through 10 is a panic attack. Basically, oh no, I'm doomed. And he switches. And in verse 11, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Psalm 77. Speaking of which, our fifth surefire faith booster doesn't start with S, but Psalms. Psalms. This is God's hymnal. Psalms are here to walk you through the darkest moments of your life. They're here to give you a vocabulary with which to express your heart to the Lord. If you say to the Lord, I don't know what to say right now. I, I'm all prayed out. Then turn to Psalms and begin reading them and speaking them back to him. They give words to your suffering and to the times when you most need faith. And so suffering and sovereignty and supplication and story and psalms, these are surefire faith boosters. Well, fast forward 38 years. Moses would give a speech to the second generation now back at the border of Canaan, essentially at the same place. Deuteronomy 9 he says, beginning in verse 1, Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today to go and to dispossess nations greater and mightier than you, cities great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, the sons of the Anakim, whom you know and of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? Know therefore today that he who goes over before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God, he will destroy them and subdue them before you. So you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly as the Lord has promised you. And the ones who were little kids, the last time Moses said that, this time they listened and this time they obeyed. And at the end of Joshua 12, we see that Israel would defeat 31 kings. So avoid a missed opportunity. Avoid a pathetic response so that you can avoid a severe consequence. That is living by faith. Let's pray for just a moment. Our Father, we want to live by faith. None of us want to come to the end of our lives and look back and see a history of cowardice, a history of fear, a history of not being certain that you would come through. Instead, Lord, we would desire to develop a track record of trust. A record of believing upon the Lord Jesus Christ that when he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, that he meant it. We want to develop a track, track record, Lord, of 
trusting in your sovereignty, of bringing our supplications before you, of trusting in your goodness, and yes, seeing answered prayer, and even more importantly, trusting you when we do not. I pray for each one here, Lord, for whatever faith opportunity they're in at this moment. I pray that you would help them, Lord, to not miss this opportunity. I pray, Lord, that they would embrace this as an opportunity to trust in you and to see you work in ways that perhaps they never would have dreamed. I pray that they would do as David said he would do in Psalm 4, verse 8. I will lie down and sleep in peace for you alone, O Lord, Make me to dwell in safety. That is our prayer. I pray that you would help us to be faithful as we live by faith. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.